Have you all learned the importance that one word can make? The difference that one word can make? Last week I learned a valuable lesson about the importance of just one word. In the bulletins it said, sermon title, You Shall Commit Adultery. I left out the word not commit adultery, if you didn't catch the joke. Last week we were considering the seventh commandment in our series through the Ten Commandments, and just one word makes a big difference, doesn't it? I mean, that changes the whole message, really. You shall commit adultery. It was a very new age church they were a part of. I want to also consider as we continue studying through the Ten Commandments, the difference of one word. Is your faith in God a become or because faith? Are you trying to learn through this sermon series the Ten Commandments so you can become right with God? Or are you learning and striving to obey the Ten Commandments because you already are right with God? Do you see the difference of one word? Do you think the Ten Commandments were given to us in the Bible so that you can become saved through your obedience of the Ten Commandments? Or were they given to Israel because they already were saved? See, one word makes a lot of difference. This is the the key difference of really every single philosophy, world religion, message that you will hear. Only in the Bible will you hear the radical, gospel-centered perspective of Christianity. Even traditional Jewish faith, if they're taking it as we see here in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments were given not so that you could become a part of God's family. They were given because God's family already was saved and rescued. This is not a New Testament idea, a Jesus idea. It's the foundation of the first few verses in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then begins the Ten Commandments. One word can make a big difference, can't it? It's really that difference that defines us in this room. Some of us here today... We would consider ourselves Christians. You're a Christian because you know that God already has provided and done everything for you through God's salvation, not just from saving Egypt, from Pharaoh, but the greater salvation that that pointed to, Christ's death on a cross. So as we continue studying through the Ten Commandments and make our way to commandment number eight, let us never forget that from beginning to end of the Bible, It's because, because of who you already are, because of what God has already done, we can look at the Eighth Commandment and not try and earn our salvation, not try and get right with God. That's already been done. So turn with me, if you would, back to Exodus chapter 20, yet again for what is now the ninth time in our sermon series that we've been looking at it. And this is found on page 61 in the Black Bibles around you. I'm going to read all Ten Commandments, and I'm encouraging all of you to hopefully 
over the next course of the next two weeks, have all of them memorized if you haven't already. What are the Ten Commandments? Can you rattle them off? Can you write them down? Do you know them? Not necessarily all of the verses, but can you just say them? No other gods before me. No idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Shall not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is in your neighbor's. That's Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 17. There they are. All Ten Commandments broken down into two halves. The first four primarily focused on God and our relationship with Him. And the last six about our relationship with others and how we can love our neighbor as ourself. And so we're making our way through these second half, the six, and we are now in verse 15. So here's our sermon text for today. You shall not steal. Now let me be honest with you for a second. When I read this verse and thought about it this week, I thought, you know, this is actually a bit challenging for me to preach. Who here doesn't know they're not supposed to steal? It seems like from the time a child has hands to grab something, they know that this is mine and nobody better take it from me. Have you been in the nursery yet? We still need nursery workers all the time, so if you need an illustration of this sermon, spend some time in the toddler room. Spend some time at my house babysitting. I'll let you do it for free. Everybody knows you shouldn't steal or take away from someone something that's yours. So what should I say this morning? Don't steal. It's bad. Amen. I think we all know that stealing is wrong. We all hate it when people take things from us. It seems like many people talk about when they have something stolen from them. It's not even just the very valuable thing that they've lost, but that feeling of invading your privacy and intruding in on your home or your possessions, the lack of security that you might now not have anymore, the the unsureness. I was reading books this week and thinking, okay, well, let's get a good definition of stealing, like... Stealing is the secret taking of property without the owner's permission. And I thought, yeah, that seems pretty commonsensical too. And so then I started reading through the Old Testament, and I saw that in Exodus chapter 21, if you want, just turn your Bibles one page over. Exodus 21 verse 16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Now, immediately, I didn't think of stealing as stealing people, but, I mean, that's pretty common sense, too. Like, don't kidnap people. Slavery is obviously being forbidden here. You remember how the Ten Commandments started? I'm the God who brought you out of slavery. Israel is not supposed to be a nation that's then established in the land of Canaan that's promoting slavery. No, in fact, there's a command right here. Don't steal people. Don't make them slaves. Sex trafficking, awful industry, still alive today. The stealing and kidnapping of young women or men to do slave labor. All of this is completely awful. But I don't think that I need you this morning to be convinced of that. You already know. 
Look at chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And similarly, I thought, yeah, I think that's what we normally think of when we think of stealing, taking a possession. So you and I, most likely, I don't think have barns. Most of us aren't farmers. We don't own ox or sheep, but you get the idea, don't you? This is an agricultural society that this is being written in. Times have changed a bit, but Insert in, instead of ox or sheep, television, smartphone, car, something valuable to you. Drop down to verse 7, you'll see similarly if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox or a donkey, an ox for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God, and the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So stealing can be done in the way we exchange goods, the way we maybe try and swindle someone and cheat them out of a deal. So is there really anything deeper or more meaningful to say other than stealing's bad, don't do it? And of course there is. I mean, we could end the sermon now and say let's not steal. But what I want to do is present something to you that I don't think that you will hear anywhere else on the issue of stealing. Not necessarily at any other church, but if you're here today and you're coming and you're a Christian, like, We preach from God's Word, and we believe that it has a very different perspective about the world and life and how we interact in the world, and primarily that very difference is God. So in other words, what I want to do this morning is present a God-centered view of stealing, not just, hey, stop stealing, it's bad. Hey, kids, share your toys. Parents, adults, don't cheat on your taxes, although we want to think about those things. But we want to think about them from the lens of God. So here's one big idea, one sentence. If you want to write this down, this is going to capture all of our message for this morning. I'm going to break this down into its three parts, but here's the sentence. God owns everything. That's part one. God owns everything and graciously entrusts the earth to us. That's part two. God owns everything, part one, and graciously entrusts the earth to us, part two. And then finally, part three, so that we can reflect his generosity to the world. So in a full sentence, here it goes, God owns everything and graciously entrusts the earth to us so that we can reflect his generosity to others. I think this is the God-centered view that the Bible presents of stealing and possessions and our property So let's consider that first part. God owns everything. The reason why God has included stealing in the Ten Commandments isn't just because he's trying to create a society that's going to be set apart from all the other nations, it's going to be holy, and it's going to be filled with hopefully people that have good conduct and morals and characters. Now that's all true, and stealing therefore would undermine the beauty and the glory of Israel compared to all the other nations, and they're supposed to be a priest to all the other nations. And so normally it's not good if a bunch of priests are stealing things from people. You don't look very priestly when you steal. 
But there's something more. It's not just that you're stealing and that that hurts the horizontal relationships between each other. It's that ultimately you're stealing from God. This is the thing that you're not going to hear out in the world. This is the thing that you're not going to hear outside of the Bible or the church. God owns everything, and so when you steal, you're stealing from God. So I think about it like when I was five years old. I was living in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and I regularly had my bike stolen from a little boy down the street from me. Now, I was five years old. I had no income, and my dad and my mom bought me that bike for a present. It was my bike to take care of and enjoy But I mean, they were the ones that purchased it. They were the ones that own it under the household. And so when my bike was stolen, not just once, not just twice, but repeatedly by this same boy. I mean, it wasn't too hard to figure out, well, I wonder where Phil's bike went. It was my dad who got really upset. And I think that was one of those moments where I got to see a little bit of, oh, that's my bike. But my father, he's the one who really owns the bike. He's the one that bought it. He's the one that wants his son to enjoy it. He's the one that's going to make sure justice is done. See that picture as a picture of what we see in the Bible. God, the heavenly father, he is the one that has given us everything that we own. And we are his children. And so when we steal, we're stealing against the father. Psalm 50 puts it this way, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field, it is mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Let that sink in. The world in its fullness is God's. You give an offering to God, you're giving back to God what is already his. He does not need your worship. He does not need anything from you. He does not need your tithes and your offerings, your money, your service. He is fine all by himself, and he owns everything that you have, including you. Some of us might be tempted to think, but I've worked hard for what I have. I earned it, I slaved for it, I have all of the skills and abilities to earn it, and then you start thinking, wait, where did I get those skills? Where did I get those abilities? Earlier in Exodus chapter 4, it was God speaking to Moses back and forth, and Moses was a bit timid to want to go forward and speak for God, and he said, I'm not very good at speaking. I'm not eloquent. And the Lord said back to him, Who made man's mouth, or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Any of you here today can see, and you use your sight to make money or acquire possessions. Any of you here use your hands? Where did those come from? Your brain. Any of you need those things? Well, it was God who gave them to you to begin with. As Acts chapter 17 says, the God who made everything is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by humans as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. The very breath that you're breathing is another gift from the God who gives it to you every second of every single day. He owns the breath that we breathe and the air that we're breathing. Think for a second 
Why were you born where you were born? Did you have anything to do with that? The parents that you have. The situation and circumstances. Do you really think that if you were in East Tibet somewhere or in the mountains of Mongolia or somewhere in the jungles of the Peruvian, South American areas, you get what I'm saying? Like there's all kinds of places all around the world. If you were born there, do you really think that you'd have the income that you do now? There's some situations where you're born into where there's just not much that you're going to do. Well, I'm going to work myself out of it. Yeah, I don't think so. All the gifts, talents, and privilege that you're experiencing are gifts from God, so recognize them as that. All of it is His. I remember when our two, young, our two oldest girls were, were just a few years old, and they were going through the stages of learning about toys and sharing. And you'd hear the, as C.J. Schneider told me yesterday in the car, he said, it's the minosaur stage. You know, they become like these dinosaurs, but it's mine, 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 mine. That's all they know. And so one of the children is saying, that's mine, that's mine. And we started teaching them, no, that's not yours. What? No, that's God's. God gave us the funds to buy you that toy. And so that's God's. And you get these strange looks on your face. Parents, you might want to try it sometime. Really undermines the thinking of like, but wait, this is my toy. You got it for me. Yeah, but God gave it to all of us. Get right to the heart of the issue. The sad thing is that I think a lot of us look a lot like my little toddlers at times. That's mine. That's mine. No, that's God's. And we're like, huh? What? Really? Yeah. So realize you're not stealing from people ultimately. You're stealing from God. And when you do not work hard and you are lazy and you're stealing from your boss essentially, that's not just stealing from your boss. That's stealing from God too. When you don't file your taxes faithfully and you lie on them and cheat the government, the money that they have prescribed for you to pay them, you're not just stealing from the government no matter how good or bad you think the government is. Well, they're corrupt anyway and they don't use it well. I'll use it better than them. You're not just stealing from the government. That's stealing and you're stealing from God ultimately who put the government in place and Jesus said, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay your taxes. If you're downloading illegal movies or music from the internet, you're not just stealing the money that these musicians and movie makers rightly deserve. You're stealing from God. One of the ways that most of us don't think about stealing is that we steal from God when we take credit for what He has done. When we try and put ourselves at center stage, when we want to get the glory for ourselves, listen to this very God-centered passage of Scripture. And notice the hammer blows to your pride when you hear it. This is Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I'm deferring my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that you may not may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for the my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Wow, did you get the point? For the sake of my name, I'm doing these things to you, Israel. 
for the sake of my praise, because I am not a God who shares glory with anyone else. Do you realize that any time you take credit or praise for the gifts that God gave you as if that's just all you, you're stealing God, you're a glory thief. Listen to the way Paul Tripp explains it. This is a bit of a lengthier quote, but I think it will be helpful for all of us to see how all of us, when we sin, every time we sin, we're stealing from God. Paul Tripp says this, we were made for his glory and we are called to display his glory in all that we do. Sin at its root makes us a glory thief. There is probably not a day that goes by when we are not plotting to steal glory that rightfully belongs to the Lord. When we are competing with each other for glory, we fail to experience unity that can be found only when we join together to live for God. At the bottom of every broken marriage, every shattered family or forsaken friendship, what you will find is stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us. We step on each other to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things that he gave us so we can love others, we use what we have to get glory from those we love. Sin causes us to steal the story, rewrite it with ourselves as the lead character, and put our lives at center stage. But there is only one stage, and that stage belongs to the Lord. Any attempt to put ourselves in his place will put us at war with God. It is an intensely vertical war, a fight for divine glory, a plot to take the very position from God. It is the drama that lies behind every sad earthly drama. Sin has made us glory robbers. We do not suffer well in our suffering because it interferes with our glory. We do not find our relationships easy to come by because others compete with us for glory. We do not serve each other well because in our quest for glory, we want others to serve us. Thankfully, the story of Scripture is the story of the Lord's glory. It calls us to another agenda that is bigger than ourselves. It offers us something truly worthy to live for. The Redeemer has come so that the glory thieves would joyfully live for the supreme glory of another. There is no deeper personal joy and satisfaction than to live committed for the glory of God. It is what we all truly need. I hope you see why that's helpful for us. We, all of us, are sinners in this way, and therefore all of us are breakers, violators of the Eighth Commandment. We steal primarily from God. This is why Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my praise to any graven image. So the foundation for God-centered view of stealing is that God owns everything. He deserves all glory. It's his. Secondly, God graciously entrusts the earth to us. So in Genesis chapter 1, we find the story of the Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, making man in his image, and then saying in verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. And then he says in verse 29, I have given you every plant. Notice that language. I am giving you the plants over the face of the whole earth. 
Every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. Every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. God made this world, and then he entrusts it to us. He gives it for us to steward. How gracious is God already? He owns it all, but he doesn't keep it for himself that the very nature and core of God is to be constantly giving of himself to another. In fact, Jonathan Edwards has called the Trinity and the relationship between the triune members as a constant giving to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. He is, in essence, a generous person. Three persons in one. In Psalm chapter 8, The psalmist reflects on God's generosity and says, You have given them dominion over the work of your hands. You have put everything under the feet of humans. All sheep, all oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path and the seas. So everything is God's, but everything on earth is ours. We as humans have been given stewardship responsibility to care for it, to own it. Like it is good for us to own property. That is a biblical idea. How else do you make sense of the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal without the presupposition idea that you can own something. And in fact, that's foundational to the very first pages of the Bible. God is giving you something to rule and have dominion over. It's the whole earth. We collectively are to share it together and rule in harmony with one another. So the best verse, I think, that summarizes this whole idea, Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Are you seeing this all through the Bible? God owns everything, but we do own things because God has generously entrusted it to us. He's the ultimate owner, and we are his manager, stewards. I think a helpful illustration is the executor of a will. Do you all know how this works? If someone dies or passes away, they might have belongings that they want to pass on to other family members, and sometimes it's a particular family member or maybe a lawyer or somebody from outside that becomes the executor of the will. Think of that illustration, that when someone passes away and their possessions are now being passed on, there is a will, there is instructions for how to use those possessions. You see, that's what's The whole Bible's teaching on this issue is all about. We can own property and have possessions because God has given us the executor of the will position. But we're not supposed to do with it whatever we want. We're not supposed to take these possessions and just say, well, I'm going to take that from them or I'm going to keep all of it to myself. No, the executor of the will is to distribute them as the, the person who owned the stuff from the first place desired. So since God's the ultimate owner, he's the one who determines how we spend and use our possessions. He's the one who determines how much each person gets. Have you ever noticed that when these situations come up in families, some of you maybe have dealt with this, there's lots of fighting that goes on because, hey, hey, she got more than me. How come he gets the house and I only get the boat? I mean, these are the arguments that somebody just died and we're arguing about stuff. This is a really sad thing, isn't it? We're so consumed about material things in our world. God, in the same way, is sovereignly determining who gets what. And some of you don't think it's fair. Hey, how come he has more money? I want to be rich. Listen to 1 Samuel 2, verse 7. 
The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. Do you know why you don't have as much money as somebody else? Well, ultimately because of the Lord. In his sovereignty, he has determined how much money, how much possessions you do or don't have. Do you realize then that stealing is you not trusting God's sovereign hand? When you want to take matters in your own hands, stealing ultimately is offense against God. That's the whole point of this sermon. You don't trust God. You don't think he should be the one determining who gets what. No, I should have more money. So I'm going to take it from them. We steal when we are not content with what the Lord has given, when we don't trust in his provisions for our lives. Listen to the way 1 Timothy 6 talks about this. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. We bring nothing into the world. We take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we should be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kind of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is no playful, oh, don't steal like share. That's not what this sermon's about. We just read from 1 Timothy chapter 6. You could lose your very faith and your soul if you do not take these words seriously and feel the weight of them. So church, let's ask ourselves, are we growing in godliness with contentment? When I just read that verse, godliness with contentment is great gain, were you thinking, yeah, that's true? Or do you need a perspective change? One of the ways that we can grow in contentment is to do this in community together. Ask yourself, when was the last time you rejoiced that somebody else got the promotion and a higher pay raise? One of the great things about doing breakfast time downstairs before church or having community groups or meeting together one-on-one is that when you build relationships in the context of community in the local church, you can learn about the joys and successes of other church members and not get jealous because you can be thankful for what God has given you. It's a real act of discipline. It helps us grow in contentment when we look not what we are missing out on, but we rejoice with the brothers and sisters for, for what they have. If you have a lot, do you look down on those who have less? God has put us in a church so that we can grow through this together. So we can interact with the different financial incomes that are in this room. Some of us have more, some of us have less. But praise be to God that it's not about rich and poor. That the church is a place where we are all rich in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. So that brings us to our third point. God owns everything. That was Point one, he then graciously entrusts the earth and everything to us. And now finally, point three, we then are to reflect his generosity to others. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. This, I think, is the New Testament's teaching on the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. I think this is the best summary parallel of everything that we're going to consider this morning in one simple verse Ephesians chapter 4. If you're looking in the Black Bibles, that's page 978. 978, Ephesians 4. And then drop your eyes down to verse 28. Ephesians 4, 
Let the thief no longer steal. Does that sound like our commandment? You shall not steal. But it keeps going. What's the opposite then of stealing? Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So the opposite, remember we talked last week about the positive side of each commandment? Don't take things from people so you can gain possessions. Rather, the positive side, work hard with your hands so that you can gain possessions. So that's the positive thing. What does the Eighth Commandment forbid? Taking possessions from other people. Well, then what does it require? Working hard so you can earn an income. But the verse didn't stop there, did it? So that. Now, why should we work hard so we can get an income and, and gain property and have money? Why? Is that a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. God entrusts us to care for things in this world. It is not bad that some of you are rich. It is not bad that some of you are poor. It's not bad that any of you have what you have. God wants to bless us with material possessions. Our lives should not be consumed with them. Instead, we should do what with our material possessions? Look at verse 28. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. God wants you to be a reflection of his generosity to us. If everything you have is from God, then that means everything that you have should be considered this is God's, and therefore I want to freely and liberally give and share with everyone that I can. I love John Wesley. Even though I might disagree with him on some finer points of his theology, we are, in fact, in the Wesley Center of a Methodist church, so it's good from time to time to acknowledge John Wesley was very good at teaching Christians. You should set a bar on how much you need to have just food and clothing. Then save as much as you can and give as much as you can. It seems like the exact opposite is happening in our day. Let us spend as much as we can on myself. Let's get in lots of debt and spend more than I actually have. And oh, if there's any leftovers, oops, there's not. Well, I guess I can't give anything. I think John Wesley's advice would be helpful for us to reflect the generosity of God. And where do we see God's generosity the most? Is it really in material possessions? Is it just in your house, in your car, in your clothes, in your food, and how faithful God has been? Now, all those things, as good as they are, God's generosity is put on display in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as it connects giving in the church. So turn with me to one more passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This, by the way, is the very essence for how Embassy Church thinks about charitable giving, giving to this church, how to share what we have so that we don't try and steal from others. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the Philippian church. The church is in Macedonia area. So think of the book of Philippians. Those Christians, they would be the ones that are being talked about here in verse 1. Now we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have given according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. What helpful verses. 
Some of us here do not think that we can give generously because we are poor. I want you to see the example of these poor Christians. For in a severe test of affliction, in their extreme poverty, are you noticing the the heaviness of this language, the seriousness of their condition, but yet God's grace was on them. And then notice the way we closed out that verse 5. They first gave to the Lord. They're giving to God according to his will. They're distributing as the executor of God's will exactly the way the Lord would have them. And notice in verse 2, it was out of the abundance of joy that they had. Now where does this radical generosity come from? Meaning that any of you in this room, no matter how poor you could be, you could take this example and say, yes, out of my extreme affliction and in my extreme poverty, I can still joyfully give to the Lord. How does that come? Paul goes on to tell. So keep reading and drop your eyes down to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you, that you you, by his poverty might become rich. That verse right there sums up the entire perspective of giving in my mind. It's the gospel-centered, God-centered view of not stealing, thief, steal no more. Instead, work hard and labor with your hands. Why? Why do we want to gather material possessions so we can enjoy them here in this life? Not primarily. That's secondarily. Primarily so that we can obey God's will to love our neighbors and share with those in need. Now how do we do that? We do that when we know that God has already so generously given to us a gift, an infinite gift, an inheritance as Peter says, an inheritance that will never spoil nor fade. If you know the gift of Jesus Christ that has been given to you, you will be content with almost nothing, because you have everything. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, remember how this sermon started, God owns everything. So there he was, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, eternally looking over all of the universe's history, He owns every star, every galaxy, every plant, every molecule. He had it all right there. And Philippians 2 tells us that he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped or held on to, but rather he thought the way of God is the way of generosity. The way is giving, of emptying himself and becoming poor. How poor did Jesus come? Have you read the gospel stories? Jesus was born in a small little town from a bastard father. Everybody thought that Mary was sleeping around. Think of the humble circumstances. Why else does Luke tell us about the manger that Jesus is put in? Why else does he tell us the details later in Luke chapter 2 that when Jesus was being circumcised on the eighth day that Mary and Joseph, all they could bring together was some doves? Because that tells you they had no money to bring the appropriate sacrifices. They were in the poor status. Jesus became 
poor in more ways than one, all the way to the point where he's hanging naked on a cross in every single thing that he owned. He had no place to lay his head when he lived, and then eventually he had his very clothes stripped from his back. And he dies between two thieves. The great thing about the story of Jesus is that right there as he hangs on the cross, he's still generously giving of himself and caring about the thief on the cross. Are you starting to think as we meditate on the person of Jesus how ridiculously generous our God is? That though he was rich, he became poor so that for your sake you could become rich. Think about that thief on the cross. Think about the one that starts talking to him and says, I know who you are. You must be the son of God. And Jesus turns to that thief and says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will have an inheritance that will never spoil or fade. Today you become rich. There on the cross, we see what Jesus does, how he treats and what he thinks about thieves. Glory thieves like all of us, robbers and thieves who steal shoplift, cheat on our taxes, lazy at our work, check Facebook for three hours instead of actually doing our job, etc., etc. We could go on, right? What does God think of thieves like that? He becomes one with them by taking all the sin of all of our thievery on the cross, and he turns to a very thief himself, and he looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He transforms thieves. He turns their world upside down. This is the story of the gospel. You do not obey the eighth commandment. Stop stealing so that you become into God's internal inheritance. Receive the gift of Jesus' poverty on your sake. For your sake, Jesus became poor for you so that you could become rich. Because he did that, stop stealing. Because you're already rich, you don't need to steal. You don't need to grab and be greedy and long for. Do you realize that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be brothers and sisters with Jesus? Jesus, our brother, Hebrews chapter 2 says. Do you realize that 1 Corinthians 6 says that we will judge angels, that we will inherit the entire earth again when it's remade all over again? Friends, start to think about the inheritance that you have. It's coming. In fact, the down payment has already come in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The new heaven and new earth has broken in in the body and blood of Jesus. He's, he's made a down payment. It's coming. We've got cash sitting right in our laps. It's called your, your, the word of God. The Bible is here. And you have a sure guarantee that Christ has risen and conquered. So believe it this morning. Believe that you're internally rich and no one can take that from you. And look to the resurrection of Christ to realize that it is already here now. Not just far off in some distant future. No, it has come already now to be had. Christ is our treasure. Why do you think we sang, you are my vision? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. For thine is my inheritance now and always. Let's pray together.